This is a horrific situation. I cannot emphasize that enough, particularly for women and children. My brain can't actually comprehend some of the things that to them is reality. And here we are, the only organization that I saw on the front lines. Like this is, this is real stuff. The audio you just heard was from Jen Meyerson, Programs Manager here at Preemptive Love, recorded just after she returned from northern Syria, along with our field editor and lead podcast host, Erin Wilson. After we heard their updates, we knew we had to pause our regularly scheduled podcast episodes because their updates are too important not to share. Some of the stories you're about to hear are quite literally life and death scenarios. And some of what Jen shares recount violence toward children. So please listen with discretion. I'm Kayla Craig, and this is a special episode of Love Anyway, a podcast by Preemptive Love. We launched our podcast earlier this year. We were two seasons in. We were well underway getting ready for season three when... Protests erupted in Iraq. People protesting the lack of opportunity. People saying, we've had enough. That's Ben Irwin, Director of Communications for Preemptive Love. And then things blew up in Syria, and we have to let people know what's going on. This is too important to take our eye off of. The media is starting to move, turn its attention away from the crisis in Syria. We cannot afford to turn our attention away. The crisis in Syria is anything but over. We are using this podcast to try to continue to raise awareness, to keep people in the loop on what is really happening beyond the political hype and spin that you're hearing from governments in in Washington and in Turkey and in Moscow who are saying the ceasefire worked. It didn't work. It's not working. It's not a ceasefire. There has still been fighting. There's still been conflict. There's still been bombardment, shelling, airstrikes along the border, particularly around a town called Tel Tamer. Some of these places that are being affected right now, and they're some of the most diverse communities in the Middle East. They defy the stereotype that many people have of the Middle East as this hopelessly fractionalized, polarized place where Christians and Muslims and Arabs and Kurds can't live side by side. Well, they have been living side by side in this part of northern Syria until this moment of crisis. Here's Jen. If I could sum up the Northeast, I think I would say the ceasefire is definitely not over. Children are very hungry. We are very, very far from a point when the violence is going to be over and the needs uh, to help are going to be done. That's Erin Wilson. Before Turkey, the civil war and ISIS aspect of what was happening in Syria, I think had fallen so far out of the news cycle for the most part that people just assumed everything was okay there again. And so what this wave of violence has done, (laughs) like there's now like at least three levels of war happening in Syria. You have the civil war, you have the ISIS war, which everybody thinks is done, that's not done. And now you have this incursion from Turkey. What was just one very complicated civil war has morphed into three or four wars simultaneously. Like this is not getting less complicated. It's not getting less dangerous. The ceasefire is absolutely not over. The violence is continuing. They're continuing to receive people who 
have had serious injuries as a direct result of this violence. Many with just violent trauma wounds. And at the same time, our clinic is being known to have such great service to the point that people are traveling from outside to use our facilities. I've known a lot of emergency doctors, but what our doctors are treating are crazy. They showed me photos of a child's foot after he stepped on a landmine. They showed me photos of a baby who was shot while was being breastfed, um, shrapnel wounds in, in kids' necks, like the amount of children that were treated. Um, it, it's overwhelming what our doctors are doing in, in this horrific war. Jen and Erin were also able to go to Hasika, one of the largest cities in northeastern Syria. Preemptive Love is operating in 37 abandoned schools outside the city. What caught our team's attention the most? The children. They are visibly hungry. When your hair starts to turn color and your skin starts to, you know, that's a sign of malnutrition. And it doesn't happen overnight. These children ran from the middle of the night, some of them with sandals, some of them didn't even have shoes, just with the clothes on their backs, and they haven't had an opportunity to eat a real meal since the beginning of the crisis, until we showed up. Our mobile clinics are going to a lot of the same areas that our our food is being distributed. We are going to be implementing rolling beds. Uh, we were able to go to Homs, which is on um, the west side of Syria, and uh, in homes, there is a, a, a set of internally displaced people who are sewing these rolling beds. And it's kind of like a giant sleeping bag where you have a mat on the bottom. Um, it would have fit me. It's like six feet, you know, six feet long. It's great. Um, it has plastic on the outside and then uh, cotton on the inside. So it's going to keep them dry and it's going to keep them warm. Aaron and Jen also went to the Al Hole refugee camp in Syria. In the eyes of much of the world, this place is simply known as the Camp for ISIS Families. And the only reason it's on some people's radar at all is the fear that ISIS families may escape as a result of the Turkish offensive in the Kurdish region of Syria. But Al-Hol actually began as a refugee camp nearly 30 years ago. But this camp that was meant to be a refuge became an unofficial school of ISIS ideology for the tens of thousands of children held there. And as Aaron put it, it looks like an outdoor prison. Aaron also described what the clinic we are providing women and children is like. It's built out of a shipping container. The staff is working diligently to keep it as clean as a hospital. They really care deeply about the people, the doctors and like the staff there. They're on a two-week rotation. They live literally live there, sleep there for two weeks and then go home for two weeks. They're choosing to work here and choosing to put everything they have into this place. And I think it really shows. We launched the clinic uh, like five days before before the Turkey situation. About two-thirds of the security in El Hal camp have left. They had to leave because partly it was managed by the U.S., partly because now they're having to join forces in the North. The camp falls under the jurisdiction of the United Nations, just like other refugee camps around the world. It is run and jointly protected by the Syrian Democratic Forces and private military contractors paid for by the U.S. government. Until recently, the surrounding area was also protected by U.S. forces. But all of that is up in the air with the recent Turkish incursion into northern Syria, with U.S. forces now gone and new attacks by Turkish-backed militias. 
With the lack of security, the violence, unrest, and fighting within the camp has already begun to rise, making it an especially dangerous place to operate. Instead of operating as a clinic, they were operating as an ambulance, and they were bringing gun victims from the annex into the main part of camp. And they told one story, which still boggles my mind, of this woman who, a French woman who was, who was shot near the heart. They brought her into our main clinic. We knew that we wouldn't be able to serve all of these women to the capacity that they need simply because we didn't have enough doctors. A lot, a lot of doctors have left because they don't feel safe there. And so a woman was uh, a woman from the annex was shot by other people in the annex close to the heart. They took the bullet out, but they were so close to the heart that they wanted to bring her to a main hospital. They brought her to the main hospital in Hazaka. And I think it was a day later, she escaped. She ran away, leaving all of her kids in the camp. And she just had a bullet near her heart, you know, and she and she left. So why are we showing up at a hole? Because when we say love anyway, we mean it. We mean it when we're handing out meals to families fleeing war. We mean it when we're offering entrepreneurial coaching in our job creation programs. And we mean it even for the families of ISIS, for those whose ideology might be what scares us the most. There is only one way to change the ideas that lead to war, by showing up right in the face of them, by pressing back against hate and against violence with relentless love. So the cycle of us versus them, the cycle of war, is ended. Preemptive love has a presence throughout the vulnerable region of northeastern Syria. And despite the danger, we're not going anywhere. Families, Kurds, Arabs, Christians, they're all still being bombed out forced to flee their homes. They desperately want to go home, to return to their farms for planting season, to provide for their families. But it's unsafe and many times impossible to do so. Because the message from our friends on the ground is clear. There has been no ceasefire. Families are hiding in gutters and sewers as Turkish bombs fall. Bombs are still going off. You know, this even though it's a ceasefire, bombs are still going. I know some of our Iraq office has family members of friends who are stuck in these cities and who are showing us the photos that was just on Instagram a few days ago of, it looks like a volcano erupted. We posted the photos and videos from Tel Tamer, which has come under continued Turkish bombardment in recent days. Tel Tamer is a place in Syria that was once a refuge for Assyrian Christians fleeing genocide. It was a safe place for them to heal and practice their faith. But now, despite a so-called ceasefire, they're not safe anymore. The imagery of one video is hard to forget. As you see this black billowing smoke against these blue skies over this ancient city that's 25 miles from the Syria-Turkey border, you hear this woman. There's so much fear in her voice. And she's just saying, I'm on my roof. I'm filming. This is the sound of a fighter jet. God protect us. The video is from our friend Rana's sister. In our last breaking episode about Syria, we told you about how she, along with her two young children, are stuck near the front lines. 
it's too dangerous to flee. Our ambulance is parked about five miles outside of where that picture that looks like a volcano erupted. That's where our ambulance is. It's five miles outside waiting for people to escape, to treat them. People are sleeping on the floors. They are cold and they are hungry. So why is the ceasefire not being enforced? Evidence suggests Turkish officials were never really interested in a ceasefire. They are interested in clearing out Kurdish territory. This is an unprovoked offensive they launched. In the days leading up to it, the Kurds actually dismantled their border defenses at the urging of the U.S. The Turkish government does not want a viable, autonomous Kurdish territory on its border. While some parts of northern Syria are still under bombardment, other parts close to the fighting are eerily calm. But underneath that calm lies another story. The other thing I wanted to mention was Kamishlo. We spent some time in Kamishlo. It was bizarrely calm there. And it's not far away that war is happening. Like, it's not far away. And people are living their life like everything is normal. It was sunny. And we were driving down the streets. And there were schoolgirls, like teenage girls, holding hands, walking to or from school, smiling, laughing. There was, you know, businesses were just going about their thing. It was... So bizarre. And knowing that just not, you know, very far away, out of earshot, but not far away, there was, there was actual bombs dropping on, on communities. And, and if you think about when a um, hurricane warning or something happens in the U.S., you know, every grocery store has not got any food or water in it for a huge huge area around where they predict the storm is going to hit. Everybody's prepared for what might happen. This is just a little way away from more and people are living their lives like everything's normal and that's not normal. Like this is what this many years of war does to people. It makes you think that this situation is is just part of life and it's not and it shouldn't be. And I just really feel like the, the work that we're doing is so important, not just because of the way that we show up or the way that we serve, but hopefully that we can, I don't know, make people feel loved and and remind them what, what normal really is and that it's not that. So being in the Northeast Syria, um, was, was challenging for me personally as an American, um, not so much for how much I was hated, but for how much I was loved. We heard a lot of stories of frustration, of abandonment, of feeling it is because of America that they are in this predicament. And here I am, an American, and they're offering me tea. And they are saying they're honored to have me in in their home. I wonder if the roles were reversed, if I would have the same response. And I don't know. I would like to say I would, but I, I don't know. I asked Ben what we can do to help these families. Sooner or later, the world is going to forget these families who are on the run from violence, who are still not able to go home, or who are forced to go back to communities where violence is still taking place. Sooner or later, the world is going to forget them. We don't have to forget them. And the best way that we can show that we remember, that we see, that we care, that we are with them, is to give. And if you can give month after month, That's even better because that allows us to stay with them beyond the initial crisis because a displacement that takes place over the course of a few days 
can last for years. The ripple effects of that disruption to your life can last for years. We need to stand with these families and help them get back on their feet. It's not just about providing food and emergency medical care right now. It's about creating jobs and helping them farm their lands again and provide income to feed and care for their children again and to rebuild entire communities. As you've heard, thousands of families have been displaced by the Turkish military offensive in northeastern Syria. Turkish bombs continue to fall, despite claims of a ceasefire. Our mobile clinics are providing urgent medical care, and our teams are providing ready-to-eat food packs. But the need is enormous. Visit preemptivelove.org slash podcast to give life-saving food and medical care today for families caught in this fast-breaking conflict. While you're there, you can see photographs of the places mentioned in this episode, read more about our work in Al Hole, and watch the video from Tell Timmer. Thanks for listening to this breaking news episode. We're Preemptive Love on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, I'm Kayla Craig, and this is Love Anyway a podcast by Preemptive Love.